Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. Welcome, Matt. Welcome to you. So normally on Spectology, we pick science fiction books, we read them and talk about them over the course of two episodes. This month, uh, September of 2019, we have been reading Waste Tide by Stanley Chan or Chan Chiu Fan. Yeah, Chan Chiu Fan. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to do my best for this. Um, and we're pushing back the post read by a week uh, because we wanted to do a little bit more of our critical conversations. This is a series of bonus episodes that we do from time to time because in addition to our big kind of book club episodes we also do smaller more topic focused topic driven episodes sometimes this is a, a, a the other reason we're doing this because we kind of mentioned that we were going to talk about something on the pre-read and then didn't actually talk about it so this is the perfect chance to actually talk about that thing which is which is um well let, let me actually pull it up so the the idea is the ultra unreal which is this um like kind of subgenre of Chinese science fiction and literature, supposedly. Uh, the essay itself is called Modern China is So Crazy It Needs a New Literary Genre. Very like clickbaity title from Lit Hub. Uh, the essay is by Ning Ken. It was translated by Thomas Moran, who is a professor of Chinese literature and uh, translate, he's translated a bunch of stuff, including stuff by Stanley Chan. Um, and so we wanted to talk a little bit about this essay because it's an interesting kind of like, uh, peek into this question that I had for Matt, I think during the pre-read of like, are there, uh, are there potentially literary genres that maybe are bigger in China than they are in America, or maybe like exist in China in a way they don't in America. Um, this essay is making the argument that there are, there's this ultra unreal, um, genre. And we have thoughts about that. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I think this is like a really great, this essay is like interesting to talk about on, in, in its own right. And it's also a great lens to kind of like revisit a lot of the stuff that we were to, or like look at with by another angle, you know, all the stuff, a bunch of stuff we were talking about last episode. So right. it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. And this so, also gives Matt an extra week to finish the waste tide in Chinese. I'm slow. I'm slow. <laughs> I mean, you're I'm reading it done. in not your native language. Chinese is not an easy language to read in. Like that is fair. <laughs> <laughs> Just need a little more time. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, it let me not have to read like the last third in a week too. Um, yeah. The essay. So I've read the essay a couple of times. Like I came across it probably through the like r print sf subreddit on reddit like the science fiction printed science fiction reddit that i like started and run not that i really am that involved anymore but i think i came across it around the same time that three body problem was getting published and a lot of people are kind of talking about what is this chinese science fiction thing like it's finally coming to america and like what is it and how can we talk about it and this is an essay that uh at least in like my little world of like science fiction internet fandom gained some popularity. Uh, so at the time I read it and really enjoyed it. But even at the time that I read it felt like, well, this feels a little bit like you're describing a thing that like sure exists in China. I don't doubt at all that there's like this kind of story gets told in Chinese literature. Uh, but also the idea that it's like purely a Chinese phenomenon 
I, I don't right. know if I fully agree with that. And and right. I think in yeah. the, you know, three years since it's been published, there's actually like a fair amount of literature I can point to. Um, and so I'm kind of like curious to talk about this, like both as like, cool, there's this thing that he's identified as a Chinese subgenre. Also, like, can we use this same concept to like categorize American or just like Western fiction in any way? Um, and also talk a little bit about like categorizing genre fiction at all like who gets to do that like what that means like how how do we do that um well i'll that's tell you who concept. gets to do it we get to do it <laughs> we get to do it god damn right we do <laughs> um yeah so that's sort of like kind of my history with it um you know the other thing well no no so i'm just curious because i i don't know when you first came across this essay oh, no. i feel like you and i have talked about it before yeah, well, we have because you were the one who told me about it. And then okay. when you told me about it, I went and I read it. And not, not recently also, like, the, you know, within the last couple of months, I think. Okay. Um, and um, I think like as soon as the topic of us reading Chinese science fiction kind of came up and we were talking about it, I think you told me about the essay and I read it then. Um, something like that pretty recently. Cool. And uh, yeah, I had a pretty similar reaction. I mean, my reaction to the essay is so... A lot of the points the essay makes, I think, are kind of obvious if you mm. if you've kind of read Chinese science fiction before. Right. They're either they're either sort of like, at least to me, they're either obvious or they're they're sort of, um, you know, only true of certain things. They're not right. good generalizations. They may be true, but they're but they're they're only true in, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, so it's maybe, you know, a good introduction to people for people who haven't thought about Chinese science fiction before, for people on LitHub who like read a lot of litfic or read a lot of American fiction of various genres and like haven't actually interacted with Chinese fiction that much, or they've read like one book by Moyen and one book by Yuhua or something like that, Chinese litfic, and they haven't read Chinese science fiction. Mm -hmm. It would be a great introduction probably for, for, for that sort of audience. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, some support for this view of mine is perhaps the idea that this essay isn't really, you know, well, I don't think it's particularly widely discussed in, in China, in Chinese. It's not like the, the essay is much more widely discussed in in English. Um, it spawned a bunch of posts on different things. And even then, really, it didn't really it doesn't have a huge afterlife. It's like an interesting essay. And it, it, it kind of came out at an interesting moment. And like, is worth talking about. It but, definitely had its own blip at the moment and it's right. own kind of like, you know, if you if you google the phrase ultra unreal, you'll get like 40 blog posts that are just re-summarizations of this essay at places like Boing Boing where it's like, you know, essentially right. like a link the author just restating the exact same thing that Ning Ch Ken states in the essay and then, you know, another link to the essay. <laughs> um, there right. is maybe one essay that goes further than that, that we'll talk a little bit about that I think is the one other essay that engages with it and is kind of yeah. worth its own salt as well. Um, but yeah, so I guess just to sum, yeah. just to sum up the, the, the kind of final part of that is to say that this, to, to me, the, the essay represents this. Um, it's almost like, you know, Oh, Chinese science fiction, you're, you're finally paying attention to this. Let me give you an introduction. And then it's like a little introduction to it, which right. that is a thing which has a moment and then perhaps. Right. And then maybe a maybe potentially motivated introduction <laughs> to Chinese that's, science fiction. That's fair. Um, so I, I think it might be worth um, just 
restating the arguments of the essay in good faith for, you know, it's like I, I would recommend to our listeners, the essay probably takes three or to five minutes to read. It's relatively short. We'll link it in the show notes. You should go read it. But also we can kind of like make some of the arguments that the essay is to just like have um so kind Mm -hmm. of like treat it in good faith at first before we like you know i don't think we're going to necessarily like tear it apart per se but we are coming at this from a very critical angle um you know this is again kind of our critical conversations where it's like we're doing the same kind of literary criticism on other literary criticism that we would do like on the books we do um so yeah so what what do you what would you say is kind of the main gist like what is the argument that this essay is making like how do you see that argument the the point of the essay to me is like let's introduce to you uh readers who may not be as familiar um the kind of thing that chinese science fiction does that might be particular to chinese science fiction or chinese literature and situate that within modern chinese society you may not be familiar with and talk about what that can do in the future and maybe almost kind of you know issue a a call to action for people to read more of this and write more of this um Mm -hmm. because it's like an important thing for society for chinese society and global society And the lens, the window through which he wants to kind of get at these things is he starts with magical realism. There's this idea that magical realism is a genre that kind of represents a particular time and place in Latin America, maybe in the in the 80s or earlier or after. But like specifically, a lot of people associate it with the 80s in Latin America. And like, you know, that kind of the way in which that sort of writing represents an entire society and has come to be associated with this like mm-hmm. particular sort of culture mm-hmm. um, while also having universal appeal is something that he kind of wants to uh, just what he, he like that structure is a thing that he thinks Chinese literature can have, but it's not the same as magical realism to right. Ningkan. He, he, he wants to describe it as something slightly different. And right. so he starts talking about the ways it's trying his, you know, Chinese literature and Chinese science fiction and is different from magical realism while also kind of sharing this broader structure. Right. Um, and the label and he uses yeah. is Chao Huan, or I, I don't know how that would be pronounced. Yeah. Chao Huan. Chao Huan. So, and you know, in English, they translate it as ultra unreal. Uh, he, they say also the literal meaning is surpassing the unreal or surpassing the imaginary. Um, and it's this idea that, China, like life in modern China, you know, I think he coined the term in like 2014 or 2015, something along those lines. And the essay was written in mid 2016. And I think my understanding is this essay was written specifically for LitHub, like it's written and translated specifically for an American audience. It is not a essay for a Chinese audience that then got translated. It, is, it was written at, for the translation um, in a very real way. And it seems yeah. like there was some kind of work between the translator and the original author to like kind of translate this in English in a way that will get it across the best, um, which That's is kind of an, be- yeah. an interesting piece of like the essay is that I think to your point earlier, it is really meant as an introduction for folks who read LitHub, <laughs> right? It is meant as an introduction yeah, for that's like interesting. a non-Chinese audience is my understanding. I, I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense because you, you know, I, I looked for it in Chinese and it does exist on the internet in Chinese, but it's not really like if you Google this, if you right. Google the Chinese words, the keywords like from this thing, you, you, you find like references to totally other things that have nothing to do with this essay way before you find this essay. Right. That, and that makes sense. I, again, I could be, I could be completely wrong about that, but that is my understanding from the essay that like he has 
spoken about this concept in Chinese. And this was the like, well, let's do this for an American audience version of that. Yeah. Um, as opposed to something else that then got translated by chance. Yeah. I'll just say really quickly, the 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 word Chaohuan is specifically, it's like a play on words, the Chinese word for magical realism. Mm. Like, so the word for magical realism is Mohuan, and he's just kind of taken mm-hmm. that and changed it to, instead of being Mohuan, it's Chaohuan. So it's right. like, if, if you were, you know, that would be obvious to somebody who is a who is a it's, it's an obvious play on words if you're if you're in, in Chinese. No, that's actually really good. I, I wonder I got the sense that there was something like that going on. I didn't know exactly what it is. So that's really cool to know. But yeah, but this idea, this concept of the ultra unreal is that, you know, at least the way I understand he's talking about it is that life in contemporary China is in some ways like bigger than real life. Like life itself is unimaginably weird. And so literature, at least certain kinds, certain subgenres of literature play on that by themselves, but being, you know, like being almost like weird for weird sake, because Mm -hmm. being that weird is the only way to actually like capture the reality of Mm -hmm of reality <laughs> i don't know if that yeah. is like that seems to be the like the easiest way to describe yeah. this it's kind of like a weird concept um and you know when i think of that i think of honestly waist tide the book that we're reading right now and i think there's like absolutely something to that like the book is is doing something like that where like this kind of you know 10 minutes in the future, like weird science fictional setting feels very much like it's a way to talk about like contemporary China, contemporary globalism, contemporary like Chinese American relations, like by almost being like more real by being set a little bit in the future and being made a little bit weird to get you to feel just how weird it actually feels right now. Yeah. And there's some other stories that we're familiar with in Chinese science fiction that may also fit the bill. I know, um, you know, you mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about Folding Beijing, which is a story that I also right. really like by Hao right. Fang, right. um, which won the Hugo. Um, and we may have mentioned it in the previous episode. Um, but, you, you know, you're a big fan of that, aren't you? I mean, it's one of my favorite short stories just ever. When I read it, um, you know, I voted for it in the Hugo that year. Like I, 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 you know, came across it at some point in some sort of like, here's a list of like stories that are worth nominating. And it totally blew me away when I read it. And I have, you know, I think I've reread it three or four times. And each time I get just as much out of it when I do. And it is, it's very much set, you know. So actually, Hao Jingfeng, who is the author of that, um, she is a, you know, like young Chinese woman who also writes science fiction. Um, You know, she describes the like her experience of writing that story and of thinking of that story as being one where like she was out in a market and she realized the. ways in which like there are just these different worlds in the Beijing that she currently lives in. Like she has her, you know, like one social strata, which is like her and her well-educated, like blue collar worker friends. Then there's like all of these people like running around the city around her who like she never actually interacts with, but actually like make the city work and have their own lives, Um, you know, kind of the lower classes. And then on top of that, there's this other like ultra elite that exists that she also doesn't interact with that like live above her and like kind of outside of her grasp in a, in a very real way. And she wanted to literalize that, you know, you and I talk a lot about like science fiction as a way of like literalizing and like making physical and tangible, just like things that are kind of like exist as conceptual elements in the world. And so that's what she did. She literalized it by like, you know, creating a Beijing where those three different social strata 
actually live in Beijing at different times and the entire city like folds up and like folds away so that the like, you know, so that the like underclasses are asleep while the like overclasses are like, you know, living in a Beijing that is like nicer <laughs> in a very yeah, real it's way. Like, it like makes literal the sort of social topology yeah. of Beijing or a similar city um, as the sort of like real physical topology uh like this sort of weird non-euclidean kind of new <laughs> sci-fi physical topology where like the city kind of folds in on itself so that there are actually like multiple cities overlaid over each other that don't interact <laughs> exactly exactly it's such a cool story it's also it's awesome. you know it's really well written it's like a really um like kind of tender story like the the various characters that you meet in it all kind of live their own lives and are all like selfish in their own ways but also like de like I, as a reader, I was just so deeply empathetic to every single character and every single social stratum because each of them kind of like existed within their own world and had to like live within the like confines of that world. Even the like, you know, top level, like nicest, you know, 1% world, like, you know, has like a kind of stifling social structure to it. And mm -hmm. that is like difficult for the characters, all of them. Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting story and one that I think, um, you know, it's one of these stories that I think of when I think of, you know, kind of, uh, like the great ways that science fiction can be like a parable without being preachy. Like I think of folding reaching right. as right. much as like the ones who walk away from Omelas or whatever, like it's up in that yeah. category for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I mean, definitely there are lots of other, uh, modern Chinese science fiction stories that kind of fit the bill um as well like i mean we've talked we've mentioned uh i think we've mentioned china dream we've mentioned the fat years yeah yep. um these are you know probably things that you know i would slot into the same category if there's such a category totally but I, I mean maybe... any of stanley chan's short stories that i've read that ken has translated and i've read a bunch of them like all fit yeah. into this kind of category as well yeah but what's interesting to me is the the discussing perhaps the category itself so maybe um yeah, yes. maybe let's 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 kind of get into that mm -hmm. adrian what do you think of the idea of there being this specifically chinese new kind of genre called ultra unreal right i mean so when i, I let me say this before i get into the like the ways in which i disagree with the essay the one thing that i think it's really good at is like by kind of defining this category by putting like a word to the category i think it has actually done a service and like helped me categorize a lot of other fiction that i've always felt this fiction feels similar in some way and i'm not sure how to talk about it and like in that it's been very useful but um in particular, there's two works of fiction that are like distinctly American and distinctly American in very different ways that I can't not put in the same category. And it kind of is sort of like, you know, by their existence, it to me shows that this category isn't necessarily as uniquely Chinese, maybe as Ning Ken wants it to be. Um, and those are the new and improved Romy Futch which I had read before reading this essay. And when reading this essay, I was immediately reminded <laughs> of that story, <laughs> which, you know, I think does some of the similar stuff in that, you know, one of the things that this ultra unreal does in Chinese is that it sort of like takes like Chinese folk superstition, religion, philosophy, like this kind of like Chinese folk elements and like adds them into this kind of more modern science fictional story i mean it's a thing waste hide is doing a lot of no spoilers yeah. but you know that's that's there um and that's also something in being in having this 
um, right? Like Julia Elliott, the author of Noon Improved Romy Fudge, which is a book that we've like read on this podcast. There's like three episodes on it. If folks want to go back, it's a fucking awesome book. But um, like she incorporates like kind of Southern Americana folk, like through like Southern Gothic and kind of using Southern Gothic, but science fictionalizing it. Right. And like, it feels mm-hmm. like it's kind of the same like move, right? It's kind of like a, a parallel chess move to what is being done in the like Chinese ultra unreal that I've read that uses this like Chinese yeah. kind of folk superstition, whatever you want to call it. And then science fictionalizes it. And then the other um, one that I think about, and I think I brought this up in, in a, um, you know, in a things we like a long time ago, but it's the movie, sorry to bother you, um, which has this kind of like, you know, I mean, I think the thing to realize, like, okay, so like capitalism in China over the last 10 years has like been wild for Chinese society. But like the same is true of capitalism in America in the last 10, 15 years. Right. Like it's not Mm -hmm. that like, okay, so it's different. It has expressed itself very differently. And like the ways in which like society has expanded and changed are very different in America and China. Obviously, they're they're specifically different. But I think there is this generalized like late capitalism is fucking weird and is breaking society really quickly in ways that people maybe don't recognize consciously. And there's this kind of fiction that can literalize those things. Yeah. Right. And sorry to bother you, you know, just did that for me in this really like kind of like, um, you know, like it, it like condensed all these ideas and made them real. You know, they were, they yeah, were these totally. sort of like fog and it turned into like rain that you could catch in a cup. Um, and so from that perspective, when I think about this essay, like I do wonder about this idea that like, oh, this is a such like distinctly Chinese science fictional phenomenon. Like it seems to clearly ex- like they're clearly I have read a lot of these short stories and I agree that they like fit together in this particular way. But I don't see it necessarily being as distinctly Chinese as he is maybe making the case for in this essay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot to what you're saying. I, I, I agree strongly with a lot of this. I mean, I, I, you know, to me, the, the, the first stuff that I thought of when I was reading this essay was like, okay, yeah, I mean, people love making new words for stuff, but like, I think immediately of other genres and like other books that kind Mm -hmm. of are doing different parts of this in the Mm -hmm. same way that you do, Adrian, I think of weird fiction. I think of Gothic fiction. I think of like horror I think of mm. these things all mixing together with sci-fi mm. in, you know, cyberpunk, for example, or in, um, you know, anime. I mean, I think of Akita when mm-hmm. I when I when I've been reading The Way's Tide, I think of Akita. Mm-hmm. Or I think of mm-hmm. like, you know, um, some of the more like body horror stuff that happens in like Ava or like there's there's a lot of or Kafka. I think of Kafka a lot. Yeah, a lot of you know? Kafka. And I, I, I just think that, and, and magic realism is the obvious one, but definitely I do think of that too. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I suppose, I even you know, think of like Gene Wolfe and his freaking sure. body horror, like his body yeah. horror elements really kind of pop out. Oh me. yeah, no, totally. Um, I, I, and, and, and like the fact that this stuff just comes out at me like fast and frequently as I, you know, think about Chinese science fiction doesn't mean that Chinese science fiction is somehow derivative of those other things. No. Um, but it also doesn't mean that like, you know, it's 
Chinese science fiction is sort of like easily categorized as represent as being represented by this like one particular kind of new leading edge. I mean, like I, mm-hmm. I sort of stand by a lot of the stuff that I was saying last episode about the diversity of Chinese science fiction. The other big thing that I thought when I was reading this was like, well, sure, but like there's other Chinese science fiction that isn't like this. <laughs> exactly. I mean, right, like three body problem comes immediately exactly. to mind, which is not ultra unreal. No, <laughs> no. And that's fine. This category. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can compare it to like Arthur C. Clarke and and whatever but like it's also not the same as that I mean it's it's you know so I think like uh, you know in a certain way like I think maybe to me the antidote to unsatisfying generalizations is to think about specific books and specific authors and Mm -hmm. you know ultimately it's going to be really cool to get into the 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 real you know nitty-gritty of waste tide because I think that's kind of how we really you know have almost like a more productive conversation about Chinese science fiction because like you know there isn't one thing that it is and and I think the ultra unreal stuff there isn't one thing that that is either you know like there's a big difference between um you know Stanley Chan's work and for example um Ma Jian who wrote China Dream um you know he he's like you know they're just they're 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 different generations for one thing there, you know, they, they had, there's a sort of age gap between them. And there's like, therefore, like, even when they're interested in politics, they're interested in it from very different perspectives. And I think that that's like, a, you know, and, and even from the different perspective, you could say that like that what the, the, the difference between them is not really best summed up, perhaps as a generation gap, it's more complicated even than that. And so, you know, you, you can, the stuff does not easily admit of big generalizations. Um, Absolutely. But I do I do want to say, like, despite all that, like, I think like like you, I don't think this essay is like totally wrong or something. I, I think that what it's getting at, one of the things it's getting at that's interesting is there is this kind of set of things that a lot of Chinese sci-fi authors are interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was trying to explain to somebody the other day who has never read any Chinese science fiction, how Chinese science, like how to like what it's like. Somebody asked me like, what's Chinese science fiction like, you know, and, and after giving the sort of standard caveat that it's not one thing and all that, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the first thing that I thought to say was, well, some of the things that it tends to be interested in perhaps are capitalism and politics in a particularly Chinese kind of way of being interested in politics, which is to right. say it's interested in like the ways that different social classes and economic classes you know, have different things like the desires, the competing and occasionally aligning desires of these different social groups, you know, kind of get buffeted by this like massive external force of like society and technology shifting incredibly quickly around them. Right. That tends to be a thing that a lot of Chinese science fiction people, people who are into that world are, are interested in in one way or another. I mean, it is really interesting to me, like the Chinese science fiction and just literature and literary nonfiction that I've read. And, I, you know, granted, I've read very little, ultimately, like in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, I've read the stuff that's been translated into English. So there's like a bunch of biases here. At the same time, I've been really fascinated by the way in which Chinese authors seem to be able to just like seamlessly talk and think about economic class and socioeconomic class and social class and all these different types of class and the way they like mix and match in a way that like a lot of American authors 
don't, right? Like, yeah. I feel like a lot of Americans have a really hard time thinking and talking about class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. part of me wants to be like, oh, well, you know, like communism and socialism. And they just like think about this stuff more. And like, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I but do like, think that is partly true. I really do. Because like in the Chinese education system, I mean, like there's this sort of like much broader awareness of a uh, sort of simplified version of Marxist economic history. Right. It's just broadly discussed in a way that it isn't here. Right. And, and like, it's, you know, I find this fascinating to me as someone who, you know, like I think much more so than a lot of Americans have, like I have traversed a bunch of different socioeconomic classes. And so like in some ways, like this kind of literature, like speaks to me in a very real way. Like I see it, I'm like, yeah, this is also true of the U S it's just that I think a lot of people in the U S don't have a very good either theoretical or practical understanding of the mm-hmm. ways in which it's true, quite frankly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's a very interesting thing that I would say about Chinese science fiction, you know, and, and it's different from science fiction in Japan, for example, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. In, in parts of Europe or in in other places. I mean, it's not totally unique or something like that. It's just a sort of a, um, a slight uh, bias. Right. It's like um, a common that, lens or something. Yeah. And, and like, obviously, different people have different views on that as well. I mean, a lot of, totally. you know, people like um, people of different generations have experienced this sort of thing very differently. You right. know, Chinese authors who um, lived through uh, the Civil War and the Cultural Revolution have a very different um, view of uh, some of this stuff. I mean, a really interesting example is if we go back to, um, I mentioned uh, last episode, there's a well-known, um, so a very famous 20th century Chinese author is named Lao Xia, And he, you know, kind of is mainly associated with literary fiction, but he did write a science fiction novel in the, uh, I think, 30s or 40s. Um, and it's about like Martians who are like cat people, but like it's a very thinly veiled allegory for Chinese people and the like Martian cat people are like, they're all addicted to this substance. Um, and like, which is definitely not opium and they're, and they're sort of being colonized and their, their culture is being, you know, kind of trampled upon. And, and it's, it's like, you know, that, that's like, a view that's that's a sort of science fictional view from a chinese person who like definitely had like left-leaning sensibilities and had this sort of like vaguely marxist conception of history and and a similar lens to the lens we're talking about modern sci-fi authors having but he's in a different time and place and so his concerns his his kind of you know overarching concerns are somewhat different like he Mm -hmm. he sees his society literally being torn apart around him and instead of feeling kind of future nausea he feels a kind of like just nausea nausea or i don't know some other kind of nausea you know (laughs) absolutely absolutely i mean like colonial nausea potentially yeah and actually Um, that that phrase future nausea came to me a lot um reading this essay as well because that's a phrase he doesn't mention but it's a phrase that i associate with this type of writing and it's obviously an english phrase that comes from I actually don't know where that comes from. It's Venkatesh Rao who writes the Ribbon Farm blog. I'll actually, I'll link to that essay because that's definitely an essay that is like influenced the way I think about a lot of stuff and is also worth thinking about, I think, in this context. Because you're absolutely right. The sense of like, like that's what this ultra unreal, I think, is largely about is the sense of like, oh, like 
we got to the future so quickly that we're living in the future instead of living in the present. Like now mm-hmm. is actually in the future and mm-hmm. that feels weird. Like the metaphors I have to talk about now don't fit. They're wrong. <laughs> you know? Oh man, dude, that, that makes me think there's this thing I've been thinking about lately. Um, so a lot of cyberpunk kind of became popular in the eighties. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like cyberpunk stories that are sort of like written in the eighties about now right like the Um, 2020s essentially exactly well there's this role-playing game called cyberpunk Cyberpunk 2020 2020. yeah 2020 is coming right up Mm -hmm. three months jesus (laughs) yeah seriously this role-playing game has been in the news recently because there's they're rebooting it and making a video game and all this stuff but anyway uh the idea that a lot of future nausea cyberpunk from the 80s is now retro is like this really yeah. strange, weird, appealing idea to me. I mean, you the mentioned Akira like, too, which takes place, I think, yeah. in like 2017 or something like that. Like it's actually in the past yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like a lot of that sort of like kind of stuff that was very influential to me as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, the your neuromancers and your Akidas and your like, mm-hmm. you know, Neon Genesis Evangelions and stuff like are are like that th- th- those time that time is is now or it's even like the near past right at the at, at most it's the near future but it's like recognizable and so you can do things like you can read the sort of like imaginary histories of the teens of the 20 teens <laughs> that were written in the 80s you know and and people have these like very specific sort of like details that they've like thought up and and it's just there's this kind of weird almost like like it's like future nausea, like through a funhouse mirror. It's right. like this, like upside down, it's like this sort of retro nostalgic version of future nausea, <laughs> right. which is this other feeling. And it kind of is really interesting to think about. Alt history <laughs> nausea or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. No, I 100% like, know what you're talking about. It's very It's kind weird. of like how in Star Wars, they're all wearing like 70s fashion. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? 100%. Yeah, totally. <laughs> no, and it's, I mean... And it's the stuff that is difficult to talk about, I think. Um, it's difficult to talk about like you and I are doing right now in this just kind of like matter of fact way. And it's one of the like taking it back to the ultra unreal essay. It's one of the things that this type of fiction does well by being weird for weirdness's sake. It breaks you out of like just the like everything always feels normal because that's what you know and that's what mm-hmm. you live in. And it like helps you actually understand and think about these things that are like the modern world is weird. Mm-hmm. Life right now is weird. It's fucked up and like hard to think about sometimes. So like, you know, let's let's put it like just 10 yeah. minutes in the field. Let's put it, you know, I think to what waste tide yeah. is set like less than 10 years in the future, essentially. But like, it's just enough time to kind of like break stuff in a way that you're like, oh, right. Yeah, this is really weird. We're sorry to bother you, which is set kind of like in an alternate present situation where it's like right. things are just a little bit different, but they're different in the same way. <laughs> they're different yeah. in like that. They actually are about now. Um, oh, yeah. There's all these great details. Um, uh, so, well, actually, before, there's another thing I wanted to say really quickly about yeah. the stuff that this reminds me of. It also reminds me of, like, very strongly of Ray, Bra- Ray Bradbury. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, totally. Because uh, I feel like he... Especially like, one of more, th- like, literary fiction kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, one of the things that he's doing is he's he's interested in talking about society. Yeah. Um, through the lens of like whatever beautiful metaphor or like sort of 
um, pathos rich thought he can come up with. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way that's kind of the approach that, that the sort of a lot of these Chinese sci-fi authors are taking They're they're they don't discriminate between techniques you know, based on some kind of preconceived notion of like what genre a technique can be used in. Yeah. You know, they're just as likely to use a kind of avant-garde literary technique as they are to use something from like, you know, foreign science fiction from the eighties or magical realism or, Mm. you know, or like Chinese poetry, (laughs) you know, like stuff that we don't have any context for. That's a, I'm glad you said that. You reminded me, uh, one of the very, very large influences of all Chinese popular literature, which I don't think I talked about before, which I probably should have, is uh, Kung Fu stories Mm. uh, or Wuxia Xiaoshua. Wuxia stories are like, if you've ever seen a Kung Fu movie where they're wearing robes and there might be magic, that kind of story, right? you know, there doesn't have to be magic. And there doesn't I mean, have like to Crouching ropes, but Tiger, Hidden Dragon exactly. is probably the easiest reference for an American audience. Yeah, totally. Um, like Kung Fu stories in China have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history. I mean, thousands, arguably. And they're incredibly popular. And they've been popular for a very long time. And they occu- They kind of have, there's this, you know, if you've ever heard of like the matter of Britain or the matter of France, these sort of like imaginary, mystical adventure story packed like pasts mm. of of european countries mm-hmm. where in the matter of britain is like the version of british history where king arthur and the round table i was just gonna know, say like existed. king arthur i think is just yeah. the easiest way of you know like yeah. king arthur style stories yeah yeah, yeah so the, that's kind of what kung fu stories do in china um they create this sort of like imagined past that a, like, is full romantic, of magic and adventure and right. hero- heroism yeah it's very romantic it's very heroic it's very action-packed um mm-hmm. the good guys and, being good the knights being heroic right. you know the right. samurai being heroic, whatever the kung fu masters totally. being heroic like wh- whoever it is in whichever culture there's this kind of yeah. common theme through these like romance historical totally. romance stories yeah and so there's this incredibly one of the things that china has that's a little bit um that's a little bit different from other countries is the length and breadth and depth of this tradition is the scope is just larger because it's China, you know? Yeah. So like, you've just got more of these stories <laughs> and more history of these stories going back further, more authors, and there's just so much of it. And so there's so many references to that in ways tied, for example, or in any of these, these Chinese science fiction books, it's just sort of inevitable, an inevitable part of the culture mm-hmm. in the way that um, similar stories are, you know, like even if you're not interested in rewriting, writing like a, you know, your own version of Robin Hood, if you're writing about social class and there's a kind of a rich being stolen from by the poor thing happening, like Robin Hood is there in the back of your mind. Yeah. If you if you're if you've grown up in, in, in our culture, that's just like a thing that's there. Right. And it's similar to that, you know, and it's worth saying um, for, you know, folks who maybe have not started Waste Tide yet. Like, I don't think this stuff is one fully necessary for understanding Waste Tide, but also Ken like does have footnotes about some of it, too, particularly like a lot of times the characters will like reference various like historical figures or like works of poetry or whatever. And like, you know, the translator will make a footnote of like, this is the thing being referenced right here. Just FYI. Um, yeah, which you is, don't need to know any of this to enjoy right. the book, but it's also, it's like, it's, it's always nice. I find when those kind of, you know, translator footnotes exist to be like, Oh, okay. So that's not just like, like that character didn't just say a thing. They're actually quoting something that's really well known, but the like text yeah. doesn't need to like call attention to the fact that they're quoting it. Yeah. 
Totally. So it's really it's really interesting to think, you know, when we're talking in terms of genre and the way Chinese sci-fi works, I mean, mm. it's kind of inevitable that, you know, because Chinese literature has a different geography, like, like, you know, the different things are closer or further from different other things. Yeah. So like, you know, in Chinese literature, everybody grows up with Kung Fu stories much closer to their sort of hearts, I think, in general, on average, than people do in the West. Right. We grew up much with like sort of romantic chivalric stories, perhaps a little bit closer to the heart or right. certain other or kinds Greek of stories. Or Greek myths or whatever. Or it Greek might be. myths, right. You know, we have people grow up in different, Shakespeare. you know, contexts. <laughs> Shakespeare. Great. Of course. You know, like, you know, Chinese people know who Shakespeare is, but they don't grow up with him like as much a part of their lives. Right. Um, and this and is similarly, not even to just say that yeah. like, oh, yeah, we read Shakespeare in school, but we also like watch 10 things I hate about you. Right. Like, exactly. we, we, you know, we have these stories just like permeated through our culture. Right. And so because the geography of Chinese literature is different, like naturally, you, you know, inevitably Chinese science fiction you know, even if it's even if it's heavily influenced by American science fiction and English language science fiction and other tropes from Japan that we're familiar with, even if it's you know it's still going to be located in a different place in 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 relative to other genres in China, and so those other genres will have a different kind of type of influence on it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of an interesting thing to think about too. You know, the the magical realism being a good example of this. Like magical realism is probably more well known in China in some sense than it is in America, right. or at least like it's well known in a slightly different way. Um, it was huge in the eighties. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose it was also huge here, but I, it's at least like, kind of worth pointing it out as like right. a touchstone. Well, we talked you know, in about a way that, this in the pre-read yeah. too, about the, yeah. the, the ways in which they differ and like why there's that like socialist connection and all of that. Um, so the one other thing I did kind of want to talk about here, um, you know, like one of the things that this essay is doing to bring it back to the essay a little bit is it's like making an argument about like this as a genre that exists. Like I have noticed these trends that exists. We should talk about it. And, in particular, one of the things it's doing is also like, and I am an author whose works fit within this genre, <laughs> right? And I, I want to talk about this a little bit of like, who gets to decide what genres are and what things fit into genres? Because I think there's something really interesting when an author tries to self-define what genre they're writing in. Like, it's always an interesting move to me when an author like makes that move. Yeah, and and a lot of authors do do this, like a from lot of regardless of where they're it. from, like totally. from everywhere, like 100%. authors just do this. <laughs> I mean, authors we've read do this, and like maybe yeah. would classify the genre of their books differently from the way we did it, and would get pissed off at us about the way that we talk about them. Frankly, mm -hmm. um, in particular, I'm thinking of like Nadetti Okorafor, who like is adamant that she does not write Afrofuturism, but writes African futurism, and if you call it the wrong thing, she gets really pissed off about it. Um, you know, and like. Okay, I get this to some degree, um, and I don't particularly like want to talk about her or any other like American author, but I think it is always interesting to me when authors try to define their own genre. Like, it's an interesting move to me. I, I'm curious what you think about it, Matt, and then maybe I'll, I'll I'll talk a little bit about what I think about it. Yeah, it is an interesting move. I mean, I suppose the the thing I'm most interested in is how is like the specific way that they do it. Because like some of them can do it better than others. I think that mm. um, Nnedi Okorafor is sort of doing something more interesting in some sense than, than Ninkun is. Interesting. Um, because, because she's kind of part of this, she's situating herself as part of this larger political argument 
right um that has to do with race in america and mm-hmm. africa and it's mm-hmm. very big and complicated and there's a lot going on there right and the fact and that she she's has an a, immigrant right exactly and ninkan you know i mean he he's more similar to a lot of other authors who do this sort of thing in america if you've ever read an interview with an author and they've ever talked about like well i think my work is blah that's kind of what we're talking about here it's you Jeff know it's vandermeer it's, it, <laughs> sure um <laughs> but anyway like i don't care who i, I, I piss n- off <laughs> ninkan ninkan is is like you know he has a view of what he's doing mm-hmm. and that's just such a reasonable thing that to have i i don't really yeah. i think the, the interesting thing to me is like how good is his view mm-hmm. you know how how like useful and, is it yeah like and i think his view is fine <laughs> right i think it's fine like it doesn't have any huge like we've we've been talking we've about been it talking in view in some right, sense exactly. this whole episode um but like maybe I, it's I, not that it's wrong it's that maybe it's like small yeah it's it's like it's not enough mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i want i want more i think there's you know it's it's an introduction and and like we're maybe perhaps we've already d- gone through the introductory part of of the discussion right um right well i do think it's interesting too because you know the the thing i see often or the way i feel often about you know, when I see authors try to self-define their own genre, I think the thing, like a common trap that I see them fall into is to begin to try to own that genre fully and start gatekeeping that genre. Um, actually, with like the reason I kind of pick on Jeff Vandermeer here is because he does this shit a lot with like the new weird. Like he has become kind of like, you know, if you talk to him on the Internet, which I have done before, uh, he will tell you like, no, this story is not the new weird. You're wrong because it doesn't have yeah. these themes that the new weird has to have. And I write new weird and I, you know, publish anthologies of new weird. So I get to tell you what is or is not new weird. And I find yeah. this kind of an interesting move, particularly from authors because i'm not sure if authors get to be the final arbiter of a what a genre is or isn't but also be like what their genre is or isn't right like i think there's a place for both fans and critics to also be a part of that conversation and i wouldn't necessarily you know, again, like someone like Nanetti is maybe making a specific political argument with what she's doing, but she's also making a literary analytic argument about her own literature and what she's doing. And I don't necessarily, you know, like, does she get to be the final arbiter of like the literary analysis of her work? Like, I don't necessarily think so. You know, I wouldn't privilege another critic over her either, but like, I also wouldn't privilege her own analysis of her literature above anyone else's in particular. Yeah, this is a this is a very old and and interesting debate in in criticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think my view is that authors don't get to gatekeep, um, right? But but that gatekeeping is different from um, analyzing. You know, I I, I think it, you know, on the one hand, if if you want to say like, yes, I have a view about my work. And my view is this, and I hold this view very strongly. And like, if you disagree with me, I will not like it. That's perhaps somewhat different from saying, oh yeah, so-and-so another author is fundamentally different from me. And like, there's this unbreachable gap between our work and that that's, those are different claims. And I think that's a really, that's the thing that the second one is the thing that I don't like. And I don't think that authors get to do. And I don't think that critics get to do that either. Really. I think like, certainly, certainly they do. Right. When I say they get to do it, like, <laughs> right. What I mean is they shouldn't. Or, or rather, um, like, we don't have to listen to that. <laughs> like, we don't have to yes, agree with that yes. analysis. 
you the reader or you the artist or you the human mm -hmm. um have autonomy and you have free will and you have right. um, a moral right i think um to your own view of literature and art well, that is not beholden to anyone else's view. And I think that kind of the other thing I'll say about this is I think as an argument, that is not a very compelling or interesting one too, right? Like as an argument saying like, no, this doesn't fit this particular genre because of arbitrary guideline I have like created for this genre. Right. Isn't actually an argument that like really gets you anywhere. Like arguing whether a book particular book is cyberpunk or not is not an interesting argument like right. talking about its specific themes and like digging into those themes is an interesting argument like asking what yeah. is the book trying to say is actually an interesting discussion in a way that right. what genre is it to me at least is like not a particular in particularly interesting conversation and like yeah. personally when i use genre it is you know, shorthand for like, hey, maybe this kind of chunk of themes, let's talk more about them in specifics. As you said, it'll be really interesting to talk about the specifics of Waste Tide in the context of this conversation we're just having. More interesting in some ways. Um, but like, yeah, so so to me, that's, a, that's one of the ways in which when I get annoyed at this, like part of what I get annoyed at is just like, okay, so it's not this like genre because of your particular criterion, but like, what does that tell me? Like, where does that get me? Can we rather like talk about those criteria and like talk about how it does or doesn't fit instead of getting into an argument of like what label we're using? Because ultimately, yeah. you know, this is actually a conversation I've had with Jeff Vandermeer online really briefly at, at one point um, where like the way I look at genre particularly in the like way that he is like defining new weird is it's marketing and branding, right? Like that's what it is. It's a way of grouping a bunch of different types of stories and books together so that you can say, if you like X, you might like Y like that is really the purpose of that kind of thing. And his argument at the time was like, no, it can't be marketing because there are no like labels on any bookshelves that say new weird. So clearly it's not marketing. Right. Like this was word for word what what he he said in this conversation. And it's very like a, it's an interesting move to me to say that, like, no, it's not marketing. It's it's saying something real. Right. Like it, it's actually a real thing that exists in the world when ultimately like all of these genre definitions are for like or like human created categories for human created things. Like it's none of it's yeah. real. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, it's it's it can be both and like the perspective can be important it can be both but the way that you're looking at it is important in a given context so like i think it's it's not crazy to me to say that like books have qualities like narratives have yeah, different qualities absolutely. and you could perhaps categorize you know you could at least have a conversation about categorizing things in different ways but it's obviously also true that genre is a marketing tool that is very important right among other marketing like it, it stands out as particularly important among other marketing tools for books and other art right so like you know i mean but but i also think it's also lineage it's also you know um mm -hmm. it's also like politics it's also other things yeah it's a lot of different things and the right. different perspectives are all kind of useful in different ways and that's why i think like the, i super strongly agree with the thing that you said a couple minutes ago adrian which is that like fundamentally i think it should be a tool for the discussion you want to have not an end in and of itself absolutely if we're if we're talking about genre for the sake of talking about genre i mean 
it's not clear to me what that means. <laughs> what, even. What, what we're even doing, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, what are we even doing? Right. And then if, if, if all of a sudden you say, well, actually, we're doing this, then it's like, okay, yeah, that's a good, that may be a good thing for us to be doing, mm-hmm. you know, and let's do that. <laughs> well, and I think it's part of why we have read fantasy novels and like next month we'll read another horror novel. And it's like, okay. We're, what are you we're talking about, Adrian? Sci- we only read science fiction. Science fiction, but like you know who cares ultimately right like what's more interesting to me is like does it take stuff about society and literalize literalize it through speculative elements like that's the thing i want to talk about because that's fun to talk about (laughs) ultimately if you if you get to the secret recording studio too late adrian i'm gonna shut the gate and not let you in (laughs) going to gatekeep me (laughs) gonna gatekeep me because i want to talk about romance (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well i think i think that's what i have to say about this we've gotten a little bit further away from the essay itself but i think that's been a good conversation <laughs> it is a good conversation i think talking about like you know it's a way to kind of bring to me it's like bringing chinese science fiction out of this kind of weird silo where it's this it, where it's its own separate thing and into this broader conversation about genre mm. and science fiction and speculative fiction and literature generally mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, I am always a big fan, you know, I know like there's probably some ways in which it's problematic that I don't even realize, but I'm always a big fan of like taking works that are from a very different cultural context and asking, well, like, what can I do to like, think about the ways in which it's similar and different from other stuff that I've read and uh, other stuff that I've understood. Right. And so like, this is one of the ways in which like, okay, maybe it is even worth about talking about like, you know, uh, Chao Huan as like its own like literary genre and like sorry to bother you like doesn't fit into it because it's not chinese but i'm still gonna think about waist tide and sorry to bother you together always like i'm never going to be able to like tear those apart as like these are two distinct things that don't relate to each other you know and so like cool let me like you know at very least i like want to think about that because i think it's you know i don't know i'm a big fan of like being able to talk about this stuff through literature like whoever is doing it however we're doing it Books are cool. I like them. Yay, fiction. (laughs) I'm glad we think that given that we do a fiction podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell anyone. It's a secret. Uh, Cool. So with that, do we have anything else that we want to say? We'll be back next week with the post read. I'm excited to talk about Waste Tide. It's going to be good. We'll have some content warnings. We'll have lots of spoiler warnings. Um, It'll be a fun conversation, I think. Yeah. Uh, so with that, you know, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to WJ for our music and Noah Bradley for our artwork. To Matt for being a good friend. Aw. Aw. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, this, this was a good this was a good and fun conversation. And um, yeah, we'll be back next week and then the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. No, and, no, know, no, 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 no. Content no, for no. the content. No, gods. we won't. <laughs> like at some point, at some point, you know. Um, the, change can is, never happen Matt the, the, nothing I, can I end the, the name of the thing the incident there's like the, the what's the name of the like thing that destroys Tokyo in Eva oh the 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 second impact the second impact yes second impact, at some point though. second impact will happen <laughs> thank you thank you um cool so we'll we'll see y'all later <laughs> bye Matt peace out <laughs>